The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Man, let's start a new series. Please turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 13 tonight. Praise God. So tonight we are starting a brand new series. It's called The Fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to be taking nine weeks to study in depth the traits that mark the Christian life because the Spirit of God dwells in those who have turned from sin to trust in Jesus. Uh, As you're turning there, let's get a hurdle out of the way because the fruit of the Spirit can sometimes be confused with the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. So I'm going to just read those to you briefly so we understand the difference. You're going to Galatians. I'm reading out of 1 Corinthians right now. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So the nine gifts of the Spirit are manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power for the common good. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. And we're told here that they are distributed to different believers at different times according to the will of God. Now, the nine fruit of the Spirit, that was the gifts of the Spirit. The nine fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, number is the same, interestingly enough. The fruit of the Spirit are attributes of God's character and nature that should be manifest in every believer. That's one of the big differences between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit distributed by the Spirit, by the will of God, different people at different times. The fruit of the Spirit being characteristics and attributes of God's character and nature, they should be manifest in the life of every believer because we literally have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. And this was prophesied long before Jesus ever walked the earth. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 33. It says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, the law of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai, that showed humanity much about who God is and what he expects. But that was an external giving of the law. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that we receive the Holy Spirit by trusting in Jesus and in his gospel. This is Ephesians 1.13. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. We are sealed, according to Ephesians 1, with the promise of the Holy Spirit, And he actually dwells in and with those who belong to Jesus. This is Romans 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So this means the law of God and character of God is no longer written on stone tablets 
we can look at, but it is written upon our hearts to be lived out. All of this taken together shows us that these fruit of the Spirit are meant to mark the life of every believer who has received the precious gift of the Holy Spirit by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That leads us to our text. We're in Galatians 5. We're going to read verses 13 through 24. And I hope you're there. Here we go. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." Praise God for his word. Uh, There is a whole lot that could be said about the contrast between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, but we're going to unpack that later in the series because I need as much time as I can possibly get to try and scratch the surface here uh, regarding the incredible importance of the first fruit uh, that is listed among these nine. Uh, I'm hoping each of you should have received a, uh, a small packet of trail mix and a bottle of water so that none of you pass out from either hunger or thirst over the next four or five hours as we work through this text. So, um, what, did that not happen? <laughs> this can be rough for some of you. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, it definitely won't be five hours, for sure. Uh, so the first fruit, what is it? Listed. It's love. Okay, And it is no mistake that this fruit is listed first. Uh, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he had this to say. He said, it would have been enough to mention only the single fruit of love, for love embraces all the fruits of the Spirit. All of the rest are really kind of filling in and helping us understand all of what love is and what it looks like. Love is kind of the master fruit. It's like the one ring to rule them all, right? Uh, It really is like that, though. All of the rest of these attributes are really contained within love, and and the rest of it is helping us understand how deep and wide and beautiful that is. So why is it that love is listed first among these fruit of the Spirit? Why is it that I'm making such a big deal about love? Why is love so important? Well, uh, the first reason I would give you is that Jesus said so, and that could really be the last reason I give you, right? Uh, Jesus said so. So where do I get that? Well, you can go to Mark 12. This also occurs uh, in Matthew. 
uh, we have something called the greatest commandment. Somebody actually got to Jesus and said, hey, what's most important? So I'm in Mark 12, uh, starting in, in verse 28. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, for me, this is a part, I, you know, Anything Jesus said, I, I want to pay serious attention to. Anything God's word says, I want to pay serious attention to. But this, this seems like a place where I really want to key in to the next answer that's coming. Because somebody got to the master and said, hey, what's the most important thing? And uh, he answers. And so the answer from Jesus, starting in verse 29, is the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So when Jesus, God in the flesh, there before the foundations of the world, a part of the very Trinitarian Godhead itself, is asked the question by a questioner, what's the most important? He gives the answer right here. And I think sometimes for us, uh, we... We, we kind of like a level playing field. We, we, we get nervous if, if things are, one is things lifted up above another. We, we want to think, well, you know, all these fruit of the Spirit, they're, they're mentioned next to each other and, and around each other. And so, you know, surely they're all of, of equal importance. But Jesus did make a distinction of all the things that, Je all of God's commands are important, are they not? Every single thing God has commanded is important. Everything he has said not to do is important because we know that it is out of his love motivation for us that he has given us those prohibitions. He's trying to keep us from danger or harm. Every single thing God has said to do is important. All the things are important. And when this, when this questioner came up, Jesus could have said, well, just listen to everything God said. All of God's commands are equally important, couldn't he? But he didn't. The master was very comfortable making this distinction. There is something that rises to the top of the heap, the top of the pile. There is one command, a master command that rules all of the rest. And we're going to see that that, that plays out it's throughout the Bible. There is one. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that sounds like two commandments to me, and that could be confusing. Did Jesus not know math? Did he not know the difference between one and two? The guy asked for one commandment, didn't he? How many did Jesus give him? Looks like two, but I, I'm just going to go with Jesus' math anytime. Like if, even if I think I've got an equation that works out and it doesn't match up to Jesus, I'm just going to go with his, right? I don't know. The eternal one, king over all, I, I, you know, I'm just going to defer to him in math or pretty much anything. So Jesus, for some reason, sees love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself as one command. Well, how does that work? Well, if you go to 1 John 4, it tells us that uh, no one has seen God at any time. Right around verse 12 in 1 John 4. And, and what he's saying there, that, that statement, no one has seen God at any time, is sandwiched between roughly 20 verses of the most beautiful dissertation on the nature of love that you will ever find. Twice in those verses, we see that God is love. And so the point that's being made there, the reason this seemingly oblong statement is in this beautiful treatise on love in 1 John 4 is because the point being made there is if you're going to love God, God doesn't really need your service. He doesn't really need anything made by your hands. He doesn't really need a hug from you. You can't really bless him or help him because he has no need of anything. But what you can do as an expression of love towards God is to do that for people, is to love people. And so in 
Jesus said, if you bring a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in my name, you do this to me. And so we see this connection in the mind of God between loving him and loving people. Those go together. You can't take them apart because Jesus didn't. And that's basically the end of it. Jesus' commandment here is, is echoed throughout the rest of the verses. If, if, you, if you go through the scriptures, you'll see that anybody you ask on the subject, we started with the most important and most authoritative. If Jesus says love is the most important commandment, we could just stop there. But we, we want to see the different angles and how that kind of reverberates through the rest of the scriptures. So you can ask anybody you want to. You can ask Paul. Paul, what's the most important thing? Well, if you go to Romans 13, he's going to say to you, no, owe no man anything but to love him. And if you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the whole law. Man, how deep is that? How much time do we spend trying to figure out how to defeat individual little sins that tend to you know, be encumbrances around our feet and tempt us to go off to the right and to the left? What Paul said is, if you will love your neighbor, you will fulfill the entire law. Not just that that's the greatest commandment, but that it, all of the commandments are fulfilled in doing that one thing, is loving your neighbor as yourself. And he even goes on to say, in case you don't understand, he goes on to list them. He's like, listen, if you, if you really love your spouse, you're not going to commit adultery. If you love people, you're not going to murder them, right? Those are the easy ones. But if you really love somebody, you're not going to covet what they have. You're going to rejoice with them that they have it. Is that right or wrong? You will not violate any of God's law if you are willing to submit yourself to what James calls the royal law, the royal law of love. If you ask Peter, go to 1 Peter 4.8, he says, Above all, keep fervent in love one for another because love covers a multitude of sins. And so we need to embrace this idea and understand that for the Christian, there is no higher command or call than for us to love God and to love people. It is the most important thing, and it's okay to say that. Are there other important things? Yes, but all of them, every single one of them, flow in and through or influenced by our ability by the Spirit of God to walk out that first and most important command, to love God and love people. None of the rest of it works. None of the rest of it's going to matter if we get the first thing wrong. Praise God for that. It helps me because it's simple. It simplifies it. It boils it all down. And I, I like simple. So the first thing we're looking at tonight is, is why is love so important? The second thing we're going to look at as we look at this fruit listed first among the nine is, is to answer the question, what is love? Okay, because if, if what I just said is true, if love is the most important thing, if it is clearly and undeniably the most important thing for every single follower of Christ to care about, to seek to obey the royal law of love, if it is the most important thing, we have to really ask ourselves, what does God mean when he says love? Because if we are honest, the way we think about love is oftentimes tainted. Our understanding of what love is is skewed based on cultural perception and misunderstanding. And so we, we really need to know when God says the most important thing is that you love me and that you love others, what does he mean when he says that? Okay? Because we could come, we could come far short of understanding what he means, and we don't want to do that. So seeing, seeing love listed here among these fruit of the Spirit, it really helps us to zero in on the essence of what love is, okay? Now, most dictionaries and most people would define love as an emotion, okay? Many would call it the strongest of emotion. If you go check out what Webster has to say about it, uh, go to the internet, uh, a, a, a very common thing typed in the old Google machine, a very common search query is what is love. You got people going to Google to try to figure this out, okay? And most of the answers that come up 
are uh, unhelpful at best. So uh, that, that's a serious problem. The church of God that holds the word of God are the only ones that have a chance at trying to answer the reality of this question. What is love? It's not an emotion. It's not even the strongest of emotions. Some people would use words like affection to try to help describe, use a synonym of what they mean when they say love. However, the Bible doesn't teach that love is an emotion. It teaches that love is a divine attribute, right? That's why it's listed among these fruit of the Spirit. That's what these are. These are the outworkings of having the Spirit of God alive inside of you. It teaches that love is a divine attribute. It's a part of the very character and nature of God. And that we as humans are able to share in this divine attribute though imperfectly because of sin, right? Any part of the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to have operating in our life or manifesting in our life, it's, going to be, it's not going to be to the level of perfection with which Jesus walked those things out because we still suffer from what these scriptures describe as basically a battle between the flesh and the Spirit. And that doesn't mean like carne, the, the flesh, um, you know, your pancreas isn't fighting your spirituality here. That's not the reality of what's being said. It's, it's that... Though we have been justified by faith, we, we still suffer the remnants of the fact that uh, this world is broken and that uh, we have not reached the totality and the end result of the sanctification of God. And so we are still battling the effects of sin. Uh, Paul really flushes that out in like Romans 7 where he talks about, you know, sometimes I, I do the things I don't want to do and, and it frustrates me and I don't under, understand there's this battle between this, this old man and me and, and the spirit. So... Uh, that, that's a reality for us. That's something that we're, we're fighting through. Even though, even though many would say love is the height of all emotions, um, they would say it's much like affection, that's, that's not the way the Bible sees it. And we, we really could spend days talking about the damage that's done by this fundamental misunderstanding of what love is. Because if, if, if many people think love is, is simply an emotion, and I think... If you ask most people, you would get some kind of answer along those lines. They might think it's the best, the sweetest, the most wonderful emotion. They might think it's the deepest, the, the most vibrant sense of affection. They may give it that status, but, but we're totally off. There's a big difference between an emotion and a divine attribute shared between God and humanity. That's a, there's a huge gap between those two things. Okay, and, and there's a lot of damage that happens in our culture by misunderstanding, in all cultures, by misunderstanding what love really is. That's why at Love City, one of our core values is that we believe God has called us to redefine love for our culture through a biblical lens. Because the damage done by getting this wrong is immeasurable and it's also really obvious. Now, we need to say that part of the problem of why we misunderstand the nature of love, why we could hear the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we could think that that means I should have a positive inclination or some kind of positive emotion towards God and towards others. And we could think we're then fulfilling the call, the royal law of love in doing so, and thus miss the entirety of what God's calling us to. Part of the problem with why we struggle with this, really, it does come down to language. It comes down to the fact that in our modern day, we are often lazy with language. Uh, and we are often prone to junk drawer terms 
and exaggeration. Um, just to be clear, I just found out the other day that there are, I guess, some people don't know what a junk drawer is, and, and I use that reference sometimes, so let me just make it clear. In my kitchen, there's a drawer that has tape and pens and matches and birthday candles and markers and just basically junk that doesn't have a place in another drawer. It all just goes in that drawer. How many of you have a junk drawer somewhere in your house? There's a junk, at least one. Okay, so most of you, that reference is relatable. It's going all the way across. That's good. Uh, We have a junk drawer, and it is full. So praise the Lord. Um, But in language, we have junk drawer terms, um, and we we oftentimes don't say what we mean, and and we are very prone to exaggeration. Um, This isn't this isn't even this isn't a recent issue that's arisen with human language. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, said this. He said, "Do not say infinitely when you mean very, or else you will have no word left with which to describe something truly infinite." And that's really that's the crux of what I'm saying has happened with the word love many times. I, to give you another example, I think, and I'm very guilty of this one, I, I'm trying to catch myself and do better because I just think language matters. I think what we say and how we say it and what we mean really matters. The word awesome, okay? I'm a mid-80s baby, so awesome is just a part of the vernacular. It's just, it's, that's awesome, right? So that's just it's anything, right? It could be something that doesn't matter at all whatsoever. Oh, that's awesome. Well, if I really think about what the word awesome means, the word awesome is saying what this thing or whatever's happened, the situation, it, it, is, it is invoking in me a sense of awe. I mean, I don't know when the last time you were actually awestruck, but that's, you know, like mouth hung open, don't have words to describe it. Awe is like part of how we try to describe what it's going to be like probably to be in the unveiled glory of Christ on that great and glorious day we stand in his throne room. So awe, awesome means I'm in awe, and yet on, on a regular basis, you know, I'll say, that burger was awesome, right? Well, it wasn't. I didn't, I didn't sit there at the table, mouth hung open, <clears throat> unable to speak words um, about the burger. It may have been real good, but it wasn't really awesome, and <clears throat> we need to be careful with that. I think C.S. Lewis said it better than I just said it, but I think this has happened with the word love, and, and, and part of this is due to the fact that that the Greeks, the the language the New Testament was written in, the Greeks were much better than we are at differentiating between different types of affection. Basically, we we use the word love a lot. It it describes a lot of different feelings of affection. Uh, The Greeks, they had several words to describe different types of emotional connections. And in English, we translate all those words, uh, even in the scriptures, as love. And, and that's, that's problematic. So the Greeks, the Greeks had uh, phileo, which is like brotherly love. That's why you hear um, the town of Philadelphia uh, referred to as the city of brotherly love. You have uh, storge, which was kind of a, a natural and familial love. You have eros, where you hear the root word of erotic. And so that's kind of uh, the love reserved for mommies and daddies, right? Husbands and wives. You get what I'm talking about? That, that one. Um, you have pragma, which you hear pragmatism in that. That's kind of the, the long-term pragmatic part of, of love that is a part of covenant, also found in marriage and in other relationships. But, uh, so, so the Greeks understood we've got these different types of affection, and it's helpful to have a word to understand when I'm describing my affection for my children that it's different than the affection I have for my wife or the affection I have for my brother or the affection I have for my mother or... Uh, people at work or people that are part of the family of God, right? We need to 
and we don't, right? We, we just kind of junk drawer it oftentimes. But the word that's used here in Galatians that describes this first fruit of the Spirit, uh, and it's also used throughout the Bible to describe the love of God, that the people of God are called to walk in, that word is agape. It's not storge, it's not phileo, it's not eros, it's none of the rest of those Greek words for affection. It's agape. And very interestingly, you do not see agape show up much in ancient literature. There's a couple references it's been found, but they're obscure. You don't see it used a lot in common language of the time. But then in the Bible, you see an explosion of the word agape showing up. And what that tells you is, it was, it was not a word commonly used, but the, the Bible writers understood. Okay, when I'm talking about the love of God, when I'm talking about the love of God that is one of the fruit of the Spirit, that is an actual extension of the divine nature and attributes given to humanity because we are made in his image, the love of God that is described and exemplified in Christ's life and death, that love needs a different word because phileo's not going to do it. Storge's not going to do it. This is not eros. This is none of these other ones. We need a word that sets apart what I'm saying when I mean that God is love. And that's why that word is the word that it is. And I realize some of you are probably struggling to not just think I'm nerding out about language. But, and I know that I do. And sometimes I am kind of a language nerd. So you, that's, that's fair accusation. That's fine. Okay. But it really matters on this one. It matters so much that when we say love, we mean what God means. And I'm all for us changing it and running around and just saying agape all the time, but I just don't see that sticking. Love's kind of already infiltrated the, the vernacular to the degree. People know that God is love, that the scriptures talk about love as the highest, supremest command. Supremest is probably not a word. Highest, most supreme command of all the commands. People already know that. We need a word. We need a word that is set aside, that has the sanctity and the beauty and the power that agape has. And I just want to raise my hand and say, I think that word is love. So we need to mean what we say and say what we mean. We need to think about what leaves our mouths. What is love? Love is a divine attribute. It's a part of God's character and nature that we as humans share in, though imperfectly because of sin. It's not just an emotion. Much deeper, bigger, and more powerful than that. We've talked about why love is so important. Why did it get first here in the nine fruits of the Spirit? We've talked about that. We've talked about uh, what love is. The last thing we want to look at is what does love look like, right? So I can tell you that love is a divine attribute. You can maybe come to the table on that and say, yeah, okay, I see that. Yeah, God is love, 1 John 4, yep. Uh, I can see that... uh, this is a part of the very character and nature of God shared with humanity alone as his image bears, uh, something that we can walk out as his reflection and in his likeness. Okay, but what does that, okay, it's a divine attribute, great, but what does that attribute look like? How does it practically play out? Well, uh, the, the first place I would go is, is to uh, 1 John 3, uh, verse 16, and um, this this, to some degree, is kind of an anthem of, of my life. This is, to some degree, uh, a high degree, heavily influential in, in all that Love City does and our name and all of it, uh, to the degree that some people that know me very well and wanted to thank me for something got me a gift. And uh, it's this knife right here with 1 John 3.16 laser engraved on it, uh, which I was very thankful for. It's a good reminder. 
Uh, every time I pull this out to clean the dirt under my nails, because that's basically all I do with it. Um, TMI, right? Uh, but this, this to me is formative, and it is top shelf when it comes to importance. What does love look like? Here's what the Bible says. You can go get a lot of different answers. You can go spend a lot of time on Google and get real confused, or you can go right to the source and find out. Here's what he says. We know love by this, that he, and that's Christ, he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He continues helping us form and shape what this means. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And so what do we learn? What do we learn when God, through the inspiration of his word, gives us a definition for love? We know love by this. Where did he go? Where did he point? Where did he take us to to try to help us grasp how deep and wide and beautiful, magnificent and glorious this divine attribute of the character of God that is shared with his creation, with his children? How, how do we even begin to grasp what that actually looks like? What's he say? He laid down his life for us. Who's he point us to? He points us straight to Christ and to his cross, straight to the sacrifice of Christ in our place for our sins. And so what does love look like? Love looks like sacrifice of the highest order. Love looks like laying your life down for the good of another. Love looks like giving everything you have to serve the needs of another. And love looks like putting the good of others above your own. It sounded like the same thing different ways. You, you caught me. But sometimes that's what we need. Sometimes we need to hear it 20 different ways. We need to see it from every angle. We need to let the definition of what love is from God's perspective. We need it to be filled in, and we need it to be robust in our hearts and minds. It should drive us. It should be the core motivation for all that we do as a church and individually, as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers, in all that we do. Love should be that first and primary motivation, and it is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a, the only chance we're going to have to really walk in the true essence of what love is, is to allow the Spirit of God abiding in us to work through us, to push down the remnants, the selfish remnants of that old fleshly man, and to walk in the beauty of love. If agape in the Scriptures is describing this God kind of love that is the most vibrant picture we have. We're pointed to 1 John 3.16, to Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. If, if that's the truth, we, can't, we cannot be so sloppy with how we use this word. The truth is, we should only be willing to give up everything. Is that not what love looks like? Is that not what we were told? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Christ on the cross, sacrificing everything, making himself low so that we could have a chance at life. Dying so that we could live. This is what love looks like. If that's true. If giving up everything for the good of another is what love looks like, then we should only be willing to give up everything for God's good and for the good of other people. And that means if I'm going to say I love I should really only be able to say I love somebody. Talking about God, we're talking about somebody. 
we need to be okay with saying that we really like pizza. And maybe you might say, hold on, man, really like doesn't, doesn't get to what, the way I feel about pizza. I hear you. Just put more reallys in front of it. Okay? Go to a dictionary and look up some synonyms. Do something. But don't put the word that God has used to describe himself. 1 John 4 says God is love. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Man, let's not put that on pizza. Let's not put that on sports ball of various sorts and kinds. Let's not put that on whatever, our favorite movie, our favorite dessert. It doesn't belong there. It's not the right word. You can be exceptionally passionate about the chocolate peanut butter mousse at your favorite restaurant. Amen. But are you going to die for it? You want to lay down everything for it? If your answer is yes, we're going to have a special class after the service to help you, man. Because that's a problem. That's an issue. And you might be nervous because you might think that this is what legalism looks like. Hold on, man. You're getting real uppity about how people use the word love. You sure? That's, that's not what legalism looks like. Not at all. Caring about what God cares about. Speaking of things in the way God speaks of things. That's not trying to take anything away from anybody. That's not trying to put a man-made restriction on anybody. We're just looking at the text. We're just seeing what God has said, how God has described it. And I'm just saying, let's respond appropriately. Let's conduct ourselves appropriately. That's just wisdom. That's just love-motivated obedience to God. This matters because love is precious, and it stands alone in its supremacy and importance. We must talk about love as if this is true, and we must walk out love as if this is true. Love is personified in Jesus Christ, our Savior King, and it is exemplified most perfectly in his life, death, and resurrection. Love is not a cheap thing, it's not a trite thing, and this is not trivial. This is the great, high, supreme command of God given to his people. There is one thing that matters more than anything else in terms of how you seek to obey and live a life that is a glorious reflection of the fact that you've been saved by grace through faith. There's one thing that matters most, and it's that you walk in love. And you will find, dear friend, that if you will allow yourself to seek God to that end, that he would help you to walk in love, to understand how far that goes, you would see a couple things happen. You would see many of these other attributes begin to show up. You would see the temptation to sin become less and less because if you really, if, if, if this divine attribute that causes Jesus to go to the cross for us, if that is affecting the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we think about situations, it puts temptation in a whole different spin. It, it's not a matter of just well, I'm thinking about what I want to do right now, and here comes this opportunity to do that thing. And we, can't, we couldn't just run down that path of destruction. We'd have to stop and think, what does this mean to the one I love? What does this mean in terms of how it's going to affect my ability to love others in a real way, to push them and stir them towards love and good works? Well, I don't get to live in an isolated vacuum anymore where I, I believe the stupid lie that my sins only affect me. But I understand that I am connected in community by the blood of Christ, the love of God, 
connects us, and it means my victories and my, my challenges, they are shared in the gospel community. That's what love looks like. That's the way love begins to affect the thinking, the motivations of the heart. It's all-encompassing. It's powerful, and it's beautiful. That's why God's called us to it above all else. I told you that love is personified in Jesus Christ, our King. It's exemplified most perfectly in his life, death, and resurrection. When we think about this fruit of the Spirit, that is love. Where is the power for that going to come from? How are we going to do what it seems we're being called to? That in all circumstances, we are willing to lay down our preferences, lay down what seems good to us for the good and the glory of God and for the good of others. How will we do that? We do that by the one and only true, beautiful source of power that's going to have the ability to carry us through, and that is the power of the gospel. It is the gospel alone. It, 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 love Love and the gospel are so synonymous you almost can't pull them apart because what you have in the gospel is a God who made us, a God who placed us in perfection and gave us one prohibition for our good and that was the one thing we just had to do. And yet, after that cosmic level betrayal, the love of God was not shaken, it was not turned away from us. Immediately, he begins to work out this plan that we can be redeemed from our sin, that we can be saved from our self-destruction, that we can be brought back into reconciled relationship after we ran away from it. His love has pursued us through the ages. It has come and it's found us, and his name is Jesus. He's come. He lived the perfect life none of us could, died the death that we should have in our place for our sins, and gave us a shot at responding to the greatest love anyone has ever known to bow our knee, to receive his lordship, to surrender to his glorious kingship, to believe that he did not just die on that cross, but that three days later, just like he said he would, he rose from the grave, that death and sin have been conquered, and they've been conquered by love. Praise God that these things are true. Praise God that we have footsteps to walk in, that we can go the way of the master, that we can choose with the help of the spirit the way of love. We need this in our homes. We need this in our marriages. We need this in our church. We need this in our world. The sickness of sin has pervaded. It's broken into all those places and there's only one hope. The beauty of the gospel tells us it tells us of the unconditional, beautiful nature of the love of God. Romans 5.8 says this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man, do you know what that means? Do you, know, do you know that the love of God is not only steadfast, there's not only long-suffering patience in its application to us, but even as we actively have run from it, as we actively have rebelled against his loving call to relationship, none of that mattered. While we were rebels, the love of God came and he went first. And that answers for us. How it is we can try by the power of the Spirit to navigate a difficult world where not everyone is going to love us. Not everyone's going to return the love that we're going to try to give in the name of Christ. Sometimes you're not going to do it in your marriage perfectly. But if we're following after Jesus and we're allowing the Spirit of God to conform us into His image and we're trying to walk the way that He walked, we're not going to sit and ask stupid questions like, well, what if they don't love me back? I'm so glad Jesus didn't wait to go to the cross till he was guaranteed you were going to love him back. 
He went first. And we're called to the same. The rest of these fruit over the next eight weeks, they're going to illuminate more for us the beauty and the grandeur and the precious nature of love. I'm looking forward to taking that journey with you. In the meantime, may we be a people marked by love. May we live out the declaration of Jesus who said, the world will know that we belong to him by our love one for another. And may we seek with fervent passion to walk in love for God's glory and for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for the nine fruits of the Spirit. Thank you for showing us, giving us a window into your character and nature. Thank you for being generous, first in loving us, and second in sharing with us your divine nature. Thank you that though we are limited by our struggle with sin, thank you that even though we can't walk it out perfectly because you've made us in your image and because you're working this process of conforming us into the image of Christ, we can share in the beauty of your divine nature. Thank you that we can love and we can have joy and we can walk in peace and we can be patient. Oh God, help us be patient. We thank you, Lord, that these, these fruit are ours, a gift given to us. Thank you, Lord, that uh, this is not something you're calling us to, to try to do all the work to cultivate, but these are, these are gifts, these are manifestations of the power of your spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the call to love. Thank you that you went first. We could have never got this if you wouldn't go first. We wouldn't have any idea. We would be grasping in the dark. We could not even come close to trying to understand how deep and wide and beautiful how precious your love really is. But I thank you that because of the cross, because you pointed us there, because you told us that you so love the world, you sent your only son so that whosoever would believe in you would not perish but have everlasting life. Because you pointed us to the cross to understand what love is, we can begin. We can begin to understand. We can begin to see just how beautiful this really is and what it is that we're called to. Lord, we ask for your empowering. First of all, that we would not be distracted. You have told us what the main thing is. Lord, may we be very comfortable with focusing on the thing you said is most important to focus on. May we, as your people, never stop seeking and praying and, Lord, hoping, not only for ourselves, but for the people of God, that we would be marked by love. God, may we understand that we have not reached it yet. That to whatever degree today we walk in love, there is more and there is farther. May we be overcome. May we be marked by love in such a way. May we be so overcome by the love of God that not only would Satan's tactics inside the house of God as he tries to distract us, not only would they be rendered useless, but also would, so that the world outside would be drawn to you, O oh God. You said that the world would know we belong to you by our love one for another. And Lord Jesus, we confess that right now sometimes that is not true. Sometimes, Lord, we have settled for much less than the love that you have shown. And we're just saying we don't want to. We're asking for your help. We want to step up and walk in everything that you've called us to, all that you've equipped us for and what your desire is for us. We need your help to do it. We love you so much. 
Thank you that you loved us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.